in his world and through his people. And in yet another day, when we have so many questions for God and what he's doing through these things that he allows and the things that he ordains, it does us good to hear his response in these similar settings so we can better understand his character, so we can better understand his righteousness. And even when we get an answer that we are not satisfied with, we rest in knowing and holding on to these truths that have been revealed to us. And that is, in a nutshell, the theme of the book of Habakkuk. It is showing us that a matured faith trusts humbly but persistently in God's design for establishing righteousness in the earth. But before we jump to application, it's important that we understand Habakkuk in his setting. Otherwise, we, uh, we can take a section of scripture like this and we can try to fit it only into our context and then we begin to misunderstand it. Uh, or or we, we end up with the wrong emphasis or we, or we come to wrong assumptions or conclusions. And so we need to look at what Habakkuk's saying in his day. First of all, Habakkuk is called a prophet. Uh, prophets were the ones who received messages from God and then took them to the people, uh, calling them to repentance or uh, giving them some direction as to where they are to go. But if you'll notice, Habakkuk is unique in that his book is more of a dialogue between he and God. Habakkuk is writing after the conquest of Israel by the Assyrians, but before the conquest and exile by the Babylonians. And so likely, Habakkuk, possibly at a young age, grew up under King Josiah one of the two later Judean kings that the Bible refers to as righteous. A king who uh, pursued faith, the faith of his ancestor David. A king who brought reform and religion back to God's people. He was tearing down all the false uh, temples. He had all of the idols destroyed. He had the temple uh, revived for proper worship. And even one of his priests finds the book of the law of the Lord and brings it to Josiah, which ushers in this sense of repentance and conviction over sin. And there's a reinstitution of celebrations and, and, and festivals of remembrance. But then after Josiah's death, those reforms quickly dissolved And the people went back to their old ways, to their wicked ways. Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe these days, and it continues until the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. This is when Habakkuk is writing, is during these days. And he is seeing injustice and violence being carried out on the Jew, and the the Jewish leadership are doing nothing to resolve this issue. Now, this is the background that helps us understand the questions that this prophet is asking his God. 
The first verse described this period of, of, of spiritual and, and, and moral decay after those brighter days of Josiah. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, but you do not hear? Or cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity or injustice? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. An anguished cry from a man who loved justice. And not just a first cry. How long? Him saying how long implies that, that he's been crying out for a wee bit here. He's been praying and waiting and praying and waiting. And finally, in his frustration with the lack of a response, he cries out, How long, O Lord? Do you not see what I see? What is taking place among your people? Now, Habakkuk knows that God has made a people to be his own. And, and, and they are called to reflect God's glory to the nations and and God has protected them from Egypt and God has protected them from foreign armies. But now the righteous ones are being attacked by their own people. How do we know this? Well, we know this because it cannot be the Chaldeans or the Babylonians because they have not been raised up yet. And it cannot be the Assyrians because they are gone. It has to be the people of God themselves who are oppressing themselves And it has gotten so bad that the law itself is paralyzed. The very thing that was intended to to do the showing of the right way, the the point of it uh, to show how to live rightly, to to how you order your life, it's it's, it's rendered useless at this point. It's been silenced. Someone said the best law in the world profits nothing if its statues aren't maintained. The wicked outnumber the righteous, surround them, and enforce their own will on their people. Justice is not carried out, but is perverted instead. And this is heartbreaking. To see justice not taking place and instead wickedness prevailing We want to join with Habakkuk in crying out. So the prophet offers his complaint, and it's a strong one. We hear the cries for justice today, don't we? But what what is it that people are asking for today? Because there are competing visions for justice. Justice. What is justice? Who defines it? And any vision of justice that is not biblical, it will eventually fall short. And it will continue to leave people striving to find meaning and purpose through philosophy, through thought, and through law. Because there is a fundamental question at the root that must be answered. And the question is, what, is the pur- what purpose do people serve? 
Unless you know what human beings are for, you will never come to any agreement as to what is good and bad behavior, and therefore you will never come to a conclusion on what justice is. Now, we're all looking for freedom, but what is freedom from a Christian perspective? I've used these illustrations before here, but it's like the, the train that is free from its tracks and it's sitting in a field, in an open field. That train is not actually free. Or, or the, the fish that's uh, free of its water and is sitting on a park bench is not actually free. Those things are only free when they are placed where they are designed to be. We can only truly be free when we recognize our designed purpose and who our designer is. Paul says in Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The Jews knew who their designer was, But the people of God, the Jews, were using freedom to pervert justice for their fellow Jews, their fellow man. And now we know that God is opposed to this. This is sin against God. This is sin against the people of God. This is blatant disregard for God's law to the point where the law itself, as we've said, is powerless to enforce and guide people in upright thinking. So how will the Lord respond to all of this? This is the pressure cooker. This is what we're all waiting to see. What is God going to do? How will he respond? (laughs) Look at the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through their breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Awesome is the response from the Lord God to the complaint of the prophet. Interestingly, God does not dispute Habakkuk's take on what's happening in the nation. He, he in a sense, uh, agrees with the indictment against the behavior of the covenant people. Violence prevails. Uh, strife, contention, plundering, perversion of justice are all permeating the nation. You would think that agreement on all these counts would disarm Habakkuk. To some extent, he can no longer complain that the Lord does not see the corruption in the land. And there's no rebuke, you know, as, as Seth was saying, there's, there's no rebuke for Habakkuk's complaint. How dare you? Who are you to question me? Who are you to sit and ask questions? The Lord is obviously sympathetic with the agony of the prophet over the suffering of the righteous ones. 
It's important to note these things because we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that God has forgotten us. We look at our cities and our streets. We look at our own personal lives and we ask, where are you, God? Do you not see this taking place? And it is passages like these that show us and remind us of God's character. That he is well aware and somehow he is working out his plans through it. Then there's this stunning revelation of what God is doing on the canvas of of human history. And the awesomeness of the lengths he is going to shows the depths of God's assessment of the problem in Judah. Far deeper than what Habakkuk thinks he sees. So his resolution of the problem then looks a little bit overwhelming. No, no, wait. I know I just there's just a there's just a problem here and I'm complaining about it but what you're saying sounds too much. I, you know, don't you wish you could have been there to hear this response to Habakkuk? And I don't mean to minimize this. This is obviously a, a very real situation, but but you think uh, you know, here's Habakkuk pouring out his heart and, and he's crying out and he's begging God to do something, anything. And comes the response that God is raising up an army to wipe out Judah. I'm sorry, what? Oh, there's a lot of white noise, Lord. It's a bad connection. I thought you said you were going to wipe us out with a Gentile army. But I know that that's not what you said. Look, see, be astounded, wonder. The prophet presents a a perplexing problem, right? Right? And the divine response is is of such an overwhelming nature that those alarm words are not excessive. He doesn't even set up a a response here, right? There's no sort of like, have a seat, Habakkuk, or prepare yourself for what I'm about to say, like he does with Job. There's not even a, here's what the Lord's reply was. It's just, look among the nations and see. See, God works not just internally with his people, with Israel. He's working on a global scale that Habakkuk does not see. It's like when you hear about, this may not be a perfect illustration, but it's the best I could come up with. It's like when you hear about a college athlete who gets into some serious trouble and there's either an arrest or something. And if that player is an integral part of the team, you will hear the coach say something like this. We're handling it internally. Uh, which sounds like he's going to run a lap and everything will be fine and you're not going to know what happened. Now, if he's not of great use to the team, he's either removed from the team uh, or if it's a systemic, far-reaching issue, then you sometimes hear about federal authorities getting involved. You've seen this in college basketball over the last year or so. If the problem is deep within the university or the institution itself, and the university and the institution itself cannot resolve its own problem, it becomes a more global issue outside of the university. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening here. It's not just a team issue. It is a global issue now. The whole of God's people should stand amazed at the awesome judgment that is coming 
because no less than the whole nation will be struck by this judgment, including the righteous ones. The covenant people are told to watch this storm as it rises up, to see it as it gets nearer and nearer, and to wonder at the force that will finally break Israel itself. The psalmist taught the nation in Psalm 48 of how to sing of the days that the Lord protected Jerusalem. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there. But now the word of the Lord reverses this phenomenon completely. Israel is to look at the nations and see and wonder. For a terrible judgment is coming on the covenant people themselves. But had Israel not warned? Was this just out of the blue? Were they not hearing the the reading of the law that the Lord would strike Israel with madness, blindness, and astonishment of heart, as it says in Deuteronomy 28, 28? The event that that Israel was to be astonished at had to be viewed ultimately not as an example of human brutality, but of the awesome work of God. The Lord himself says he is the one who is doing this. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, I think we need to stop here for a moment and ask why this divine work is so incredible. Why is it incredible? First, it's incredible or amazing because of how quickly the Chaldeans will rise up. It's not like uh, in 10 generations, this group will come up and do these things. It's now. It's today. Second, the intensity of the judgment and the fact that God himself is involved. But mostly, it's amazing for the fact that God's own people could be cast off. And at the hands of the Gentiles who were more wicked than them. Habakkuk prayed, asking for this purging of the wicked from among their people, but God's response is so devastating that the prophet is beyond perplexed. This is the theme of Habakkuk's writing. We're reading this and we're asking, how do we understand God's justice? Where will we land? Do we see God as too harsh, too rash, out of control, not in control, not caring, not loving? Should it be all grace? Should it be all justice? And it's at this point that we should note that Paul uses these passages of from Habakkuk in Acts chapter 13. He uses it to warn uh, the Jews that they were hardening themselves uh, against his proclamation of the saving acts of God found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. He shows the Jews in Antioch that the prophecy of Psalm 16 that God's Holy One will not see corruption was not actually about David who died and was buried and whose body saw corruption but that the prophecy was about Christ whose body never saw decay and corruption. And so we read in Acts 
chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And here's where he quotes Habakkuk 1. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. We look at Habakkuk and we think, that must have been terrible. How frightening. And yet Paul says, if you think the Chaldeans were bad, there is a far worse destiny for those who reject the message of Christ. The message of justification by faith, which is covered in the next section of Habakkuk. Is that right, though? Is that fair? Is that gracious or is that just? And so now the table is set for the next section. As we look at further dialogue between the perplexed Habakkuk and the holy God. Shortly after World War II, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached from Habakkuk in response to the anguish that rose uh, from that conflict. Uh, Those sermons were later published into a book called From Fear to Faith. And he showed that there were four lessons from Habakkuk. One, history, regardless of how it seems to us, is under God's control. Two, history follows a divine plan. Three, history follows a divine timetable. And four, history is bound up with the divine kingdom. Here's a quote from one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons. Let us not, therefore, be stumbled when we see surprising things happening in our world. Well, 2020 is a pretty good example. Rather, let us ask... What is the relevance of this event to the kingdom of God? Or if strange things are happening to you personally, don't complain, but say, what is God teaching me through this? What is there in me that needs to be corrected? Where have I gone wrong and why is God allowing these things? There is a meaning in them if only we can see it. We need to not become bewildered and doubt the love of the, or the justice of God. If God were unkind enough to answer some of our prayers at once or in our way, we should be very impoverished Christians. Fortunately, God sometimes delays in answers in order to deal with selfishness or things in our lives that should not be there. He is concerned about us and intends to fit us for a fuller place in his kingdom. We should therefore judge every event in the light of God's great, eternal, and glorious purpose. Scripture is raising in us questions about the character of God. 
It's getting to the root of the things we battle with on a daily basis, and it's giving us answers. We have to wrestle with these things so that God can continue to do a good work in us. People want to know why young people are leaving the church. I think it's partly because they are not wrestling with scripture and allowing it to speak and minister to them. And it's not being taught in a way that allows them to do those things. They're being spoon-fed answers that don't actually answer anything. And so when they go off and they're separated from families or, or on their own in some, with their own responsibilities, they don't actually have good answers to fall back on. They haven't had to wrestle with difficult things. They haven't had to see how Scripture speaks into their lives and builds them up and encourages them. And so it's a great tragedy. Let me leave us with this story. I have just a few minutes left. I'll go quick. In the summer of 1939, Donald Gray Barnhouse was an American Presbyterian preacher, and he was in Scotland preaching. His family was staying at a summer resort on the coast of France in Normandy. Uh, The summer had Barnhouse in meetings in Scotland, but then later in Belfast, Ireland. Uh, In between the two meetings, there was a, a week off, and Barnhouse went to visit his family in France. Uh, On the way, he was instructed that uh, if he wanted to be in Ireland the next week, he really should not go to France. Um, Hitler had just signed his treaty with Russia and was about to march on Danzig. Uh, But war still seemed remote for a lot of people. Uh, Despite that fact, every time a plane flew over while people were on the beaches, they all held their breath until they realized it was one of their own. Finally, when it was time for leave, Barnhouse couldn't go straight, from, uh, straight to Belfast from Normandy. He had to actually go into France, into Paris, and then uh, catch uh, trains and planes and boats out. Uh, his flights and trains and ferries were some of the last actual passenger services for what would be the remainder of World War II. Eventually, with great difficulty, Barnhouse uh, barely makes it to Belfast, quite delayed, uh, and, and all this time in his journey, he's watching men in uniform saying goodbye to family members. Uh, he's seeing children cry in the chaos and the confusion of what's taking place. Uh, Barnhouse arrives quite late in the evening uh, in Belfast and was told that he was going to preach in the morning. And one of the men said to him, I hope you have a good sermon because this may be the last one that some of these men will hear. Sunday morning, uh, the announcement from the Prime Minister Chamberlain was supposed to be made to, as to whether they were going to go to war with Germany. And Barnhouse figured that no one would be at church, that they'd all be tuning in on their radios to figuring out what's going to happen. But instead, he found that one of the largest churches in Ireland was completely packed. And the service began, and one of the men came up to Barnhouse and handed him a piece of paper that read, No reply from Hitler. The Prime Minister has declared war. And the next moment, Barnhouse was introduced to preach. Then he said his passage for that day was Jesus' words. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you not be troubled. And then he described his journey to get to them in Belfast. How he went from Normandy to Paris, then to England, and then finally to Belfast. Belfast. 
And he told him about all the horrors that he was seeing on his way to get to them. And after each one, he stopped and repeated the text. Do not be troubled. The bells of war will sound. Mobilization will take place. Do not be troubled. Millions of homes will be broken up. Do not be troubled. Thousands of children will be torn from their mothers and will represent in their cries all the wails that have been going up from the world. Christ said, do not be troubled. And the tension was mounting in the church. (laughs) But when all that grief had been piled up on agonizing horror, Barnhouse stopped and said, these words are either the words of a madman or they are the words from God. And he shook his fist towards heaven and said, God, unless Jesus Christ is God, then these words are the most horrible that could be spoken to men who have hearts which can weep and bowels which can be gripped by human compassion and sympathy. Men are dying. Do not be troubled. Children are crying in naked loneliness with no beloved face in sight. Do not be troubled. Oh God, how can Jesus Christ say such a thing? But then came the answer. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Jesus Christ is the God of detailed circumstances. Nothing has ever happened that did not flow in the channel God dug for it. No event has ever flamed flamed up in spite of God or left him astonished, bewildered, or confused. He is our God. The sin of man has reduced the world to an arena of passion and fury. Like wild beasts, men tear at each other's throats. Yet in the midst of the history of which Jesus Christ is Lord, each individual who has believed in him as the Savior and as the Lord of life will know the power of his resurrection and will learn the events, however terrible, cannot separate us from the love of God. This is the lesson that God taught Habakkuk. God is Lord of history. He controls history. And he accomplishes his purposes in history for those who are his own. Let's pray. Father, we know that our complaints and our questions and our seeking of answers is not folly. It would only be folly if we just stayed there and never turned an ear to hear. And so, Father, my prayer is that as we go through this series of Habakkuk, that you would give us ears to hear. That as days look bizarre and strange and are filled with violence and strife, that you would give us ears to hear. Minds to comprehend and hearts to believe. That these would be the things that set us apart from the rest of the world. That we would have our confidence in Christ knowing that you are the God of history. You oversee all these things. So Father, hear our cries. In Christ's name, amen.